unmuted myself. Is that all right now? Yes, you're all set. <laughs> I'm all set. All right. So um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is my book, 1774, The Long Year of Revolution. Um, I wrote this book to describe political discourse in the year among Americans in the key year of 1774. And I want to start out tonight by talking about why I did that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the first is that amazingly enough, the importance of the events of the year 1774 has often been overlooked, despite the fact that this period immediately precedes the outbreak of fighting in April of 1775. Let me start by explaining what I mean by the long year of revolution. I mean the period, the 16 month period from uh, the Boston Tea Party in December of, of 1773 through the literally the night before the um, the outbreak of fighting at Lexington and Concord in April, mid-April of 1775. Um, this period has been amazingly enough largely overlooked. And my explanation for why um, this period has been overlooked is that most of the people who have written about this period have, um, I'm gonna admit, most of the people who have written about this period have written about it from the standpoint of the revolutionaries. And if you're writing a history of the revolution from the standpoint of the revolutionaries, this period seems um, almost inevitable and automatic. That is, once you get to the Boston Tea Party, if in your standard narratives of the revolution, people jump right to the First Continental Congress and then in the fall of 74, and then jump again to the uh, start of the war in April 75. But I realized from my initial work, which was on the loyalists of the American Revolution, that was my doctoral dissertation, um, that this was actually a very important period. This was an important year. And it's something that I've known ever since I've been teaching and writing. Um, and because this was the period that created loyalists. Um, it created revolutionaries and it created loyalists. And the having created loyalists, I discovered while I was working on this, um, this project that it also created the name loyalist. The word loyalist is used first by someone who defined himself as a loyalist in, 17, in late 1774. And I realized when I saw that word for the first time in a contemporary document that, um, that you don't have someone calling himself a loyalist until you have other people who are perceived as disloyal. And I'd long thought that before 1774, you didn't have very many disloyal people, that is technically disloyal to the empire people in, um, in the colonies. Because if you think about it, the events of 1774 are really crucial. If we start it, if we start thinking in 1773, in that year, Americans almost to a person are loyal to King George III and the British Empire. It's you're hard pressed in 1773 to find anybody writing anything that says anything that looks toward independence. Um, even people like John and Samuel Adams were loyal to the empire at that point. They were they gloried in their identity as Britons, and many historians have said this. This is not new a new observation to me. 
But by late 1774 and early 1775, as I found, that had really changed. Um, one, I was particularly struck by the fact that in the period between approximately December 74, January 75, many colonial governors wrote letters to Lord Dartmouth, the, um, the uh, colonial secretary in London, basically saying, I cannot control these people. They will not pay any attention to me. Uh, it's all over. Um, some of them said, I don't even try to enforce the laws because if I did, it would only show how impotent I was, how powerless I am. And that the people are actually much more likely to be obeying the resolutions of the Continental Congress than they are of what I'm trying to get them to do. This is speaking as a royal governor in that period. In the same period, Americans also wrote many letters to Britain that winter of 74, 75, expressing their belief that there was going to be war in the spring. And as we know, there was. Now, so what kind of, when I talk about political discourse, what, did I, what do I mean? I mean that uh, what people said in newspaper essays, in pamphlets and in correspondence. I wanted to cast my net for research as broadly as I possibly could. And actually I read every political pamphlet published in North America between the, um, between basically late October of 1773 and the outbreak of fighting in April, 1775. And I chose to start in October of 1773, precisely because that was when the colonists learned that tea ships were coming from the East India Company. And I'll talk about why that was important in a minute. I wanted to recapture the events of the long 1774 as they happened. So the book is organized chronologically. It's also organized geographically because when events in 1774 have been discussed by other people, those books have concentrated almost exclusively on events in Boston and in Massachusetts. And with a bit perhaps of attention to Philadelphia um, and uh, <clears throat> the First Continental Congress in September and October of 1774. But what I try to do was to include all the colonies and Georgia actually turned out to be especially interesting. It's a colony that is often not discussed in this period. Um, but that colony along with New York, and I'll talk some more about New York in greater detail uh, later in this discussion, because after all, we're talking for the Francis Tavern Museum. And in both Georgia and New York, there were many people who opposed the trend of resistance to Great Britain. And I was very interested in looking into what, that, what the op opponents of resistance were saying, as well as the proponents of resistance, which is what you usually get in books on this period, that is, you usually get the arguments in favor of resistance, possibly of independence and rebellion, but not much against it. Now, although this book has plenty of action, including descriptions of large groups of men throwing tea overboard in various cities and towns, not just in Boston, it's not widely known that that happened in a lot of other places, not just in Boston, or groups in late 1774 attacking forts in New England, to take control of cannon, muskets, and uh, gunpowder that was stored there. This book is primarily about talk. It's a book about Americans discussing with each other in print and in letters what should be done as the crisis deepened and the year progressed. 
I wanted to give voice in the book to all the participants in the many faceted discussions um, of the year 1774 to show moderate positions, conservative positions, as well as the radical ones, which is what we usually read about. And I might say that I wanted to do that regardless of where the people who were participating in these dialogues ultimately ended up, whether they ended up as loyalists or revolutionaries, because they actually divided in different ways. Um, some people who seemed to be moderate in 1774 turn out to be rather avid revolutionaries. Some people um, in uh, also um, in other uh, who were avid in supporters of resistance in 1774, who were even members of the First Continental Congress ended up as opposing independence. So I did not want to superimpose the ideas that, of what the people expressed later on what they said in 1774. Um, and actually what I'd really like is for the readers of my book to forget that they know what happened, to forget that they know how the story came out, to forget that they know that the war is coming in April of 1775, in order to give immediacy and contingency to the discussions that people had in 1774, because of course they didn't know what was going to happen. And I try to tell the story of 1774 in the book as though I don't know what's going to happen, um, as though what does happen is, um, is, a, um, is a surprise to me as well as to the readers. Now, there were many disagreements in 1774. I really focused the book on Americans' arguments during the year 1774. And as I said, not trying to forecast who's going to win those arguments in any given in any given instance. Uh, now, since I don't have time this evening to talk about the whole book, I just want to give four examples. I'm hoping to get to four. We'll see if I can make all the way through four of them. Uh, most of these are simply not discussed in most books on the coming of the revolution. So even people who are very familiar with um, uh, books about the revolution are probably not familiar with these debates that I'll be discussing. So the first debate that I want to talk about is what was the best way to oppose the tea that was being sent to North America by the East India Company? First, I need to tell you briefly why Americans wanted to oppose that tea in the first place. It was not because of a higher tax. We have the sense that the Boston Tea Party and the opposition to the East India Company tea was because Americans were being asked to pay a higher tax on tea. This is not true they were being asked to pay a lower tax on tea. Now this is counterintuitive, but it is actually what happened. So what, was, what is going on in the Tea Act, which was adopted by parliament in May of 1773? And to answer that question, I have to talk a little bit about the tea trade in North America. Basically, the East India Company um, had a legal monopoly on English trade with, the, with, um, the, with China, with what was then called the East Indies. Uh, for the British Empire. And so everyone in the British Empire who bought goods from China were supposed to buy them from the East India Company. In fact, however, smuggling was rampant. Smuggling was rampant in the home colony, in the home country, and was rampant, especially rampant in the colonies. And it was especially rampant about tea. Um, because the colonists were prodigious, that's a word from the time, prodigious tea drinkers. They all drank a lot of tea. They drank it all day. They drank it, uh, for, they drank it for ordinary meals and they drank it for formal tea parties. So 
but most of what they drank was smuggled tea because it was a lot cheaper than the English uh, East India Company tea, um, be, which was heavily taxed. So the idea of the Tea Act was to save the East India Company from bankruptcy. It was, it was not doing well financially, to save the East India Company's finances by lowering the tax on tea that Americans would pay and thereby making the East India Company tea competitive with smuggled tea, which is what most Americans were drinking most of the time. This smuggled tea was called Dutch tea because a lot of it came through the Dutch East India Company, but it especially came through the Dutch colonies in the Caribbean, which were way stations for um, smugglers coming from Europe. And the American ships would go down to the Dutch colonies in the Caribbean, pick up the tea and bring them back to North America entirely illegally. Um, now, so there were different ideas about how to oppose this tea. Oh, I might add, the reason that they wanted to oppose the tea, I should make this clear, was because Americans by this point, that is by late 1773, had decided that they really believed in no taxation without representation, by which they didn't mean they wanted representation in parliament. What they wanted was um, to be taxed only by their own colonial legislatures. So to, um, they did not want to have to pay the tax imposed by Parliament on East India Company tea, even though it was lower than it had been before. So there were different ideas about how to oppose the East India Company tea. Um, some people said, let's force the people who are the consignees, the people who are designated to receive the tea in North America from the East India Company, let's force those men to resign. Once they have resigned, the tea cannot be imported because there's no one to receive it. So that was definitely tried in several of the colonies forcing, it was tried in Philadelphia, was tried in Charleston, South Carolina, tried to get the, and in fact, both places and in New York as well, in all three cities, the consignees who were designated to receive the East India Company tea, they all resigned, not all immediately, but they all did resign. So that was one possibility. Another possibility was to set up a consumer boycott of the tea, to allow the tea to be landed in North America, but just to say, it doesn't matter, we'll all agree not to buy it. Um, so, uh, and that was in fact done, although it wasn't terribly successful. And then there was a third option, which was not to let the tea land in the first place. And that, of course, is what was pursued in Boston, where the tea was thrown overboard into the harbor before it could be landed. Um, another option was to confiscate the tea, to let someone, some authorities confiscate the tea. That's what happened in Charleston. In Charleston, the tea was confiscated by British customs officers for non-payment of duty, because the duty was the the duty on the tea was not paid, and so the customs officers um, confiscated the tea and stored it. It was many. It was later on sold for the benefit of the war, much later, um, or whatever survived. Uh, it was not stored in the world's greatest condition, so some of it did not survive. Some of it rotted, but whatever survived was sold. So um, the confiscated. There was another one was confiscation, and in fact, some tea was confiscated by local committees eventually. They took charge of the tea. And this happened, for example, with tea that was lost on Cape Cod. What's widely, what not widely known is that one of the tea ships heading for Boston shipwrecked on Cape Cod. And so it didn't, never arrived. Um, and uh, some of the tea 
was left on Cape Cod uh, because the chests were um, were destroyed in the shipwreck. Some tea was go ahead and was sent up to the, Brit the British headquarters in Boston and was consumed basically by British soldiers later. But the, uh, there was tea that was left on Cape Cod and that tea was confiscated by local authorities, although it was ultimately sold, allowed to be sold by the men who salvaged it because it turned out to have caused an enormous uproar on the Cape. And it was just simply easier to let it be sold. And that was the only East India Company tea that was sold, not by British authorities, not by later colonial authorities, but by the men who, if they hadn't, if they hadn't actually imported it, they had salvaged it from the shipwreck. So um, the consumer boycott, I said a minute ago, didn't work very well. They tried very much to get consumer boycotts going. Um, it had the most staying power, but it's very hard to assess its impact because we know that many people continue to drink tea no matter um, what, no matter if they said they were not drinking tea, we know they were still drinking tea. Um, and it wasn't just the tea that was sent in 1773 that was at issue. Of course, people had tea squirreled away in their larders. Merchants had a lot of tea on hand. And so part of the arguments that developed in 1774 were over what to do with the tea that was already here, not the tea that was just coming in from the East India Company, but previously imported East India Company tea or Dutch tea, smuggled tea that was already in hand. And um, so some people, uh, some towns um, organized public burnings of tea. Um, sometimes it was more than towns. It was the, the students at Princeton University held a public burning of tea. Um, sometimes people just were told to hang on to it and not drink it. Although we know that many people did drink it in secret. So as I said, some of this tea was smuggled. So why did people care whether it was um, smuggled or not? And the reason was um, that people argued that you could not know the origins of the tea you were drinking, so you had to stop drinking any of it because you might possibly be drinking legal tea that was being disguised as smuggled tea, and so you couldn't really um, you couldn't really um, uh, depend on the information about what what the tea uh, origins of the tea was. There were a lot of essays that were published in the newspapers about why you shouldn't drink tea or possibly about why you should only drink American tea made from American substitutes like sassafras leaves. And the argument was that it was very bad for your health. And it was particularly bad for women's health, um, that it would cause them to have sickly children. So um, there were women who, who lost patience with this and who responded to these kinds of idiotic arguments in the newspapers by saying, look, we've been drinking tea for many years. None of us have obviously been getting sick. And if you want us to stop drinking tea, why don't you just tell us to do so for political reasons? So anyway, the argument about what to do about tea continued um, basically throughout pretty much all of the year 1774. It wasn't just um, having to do with the tea ships that arrived in 1773. So that's one of the big arguments. Um, a second major argument actually had to do with tea as well, and that was disputes over paying for the tea that was destroyed in Boston in December of 1773. Now, we don't usually hear about this, uh, but in fact, many people thought that it was a really bad idea for Bostonians to have destroyed the tea. Um, and a debate started throughout the colonies immediately as the news spread. 
it's true in Massachusetts, in other towns in Massachusetts, it's true in New Hampshire, it's true in Rhode Island. And then as it the news spread down the coast, people further down the coast also thought it was a really bad idea. Um, Benjamin Franklin in London at the time thought it was a really bad idea to have destroyed the tea. And he wrote to his friends in Massachusetts and said, you know, you really should pay the tea, pay for the tea. You really should compensate the East India Company for the tea that was destroyed. George Washington also thought it was a bad idea to destroy the tea. Henry Lawrence, who later became president of the Continental Congress, also thought it was a bad idea to destroy the tea. Now, so it was only, it was not, by I might add here, it was not called the Tea Party until the early 19th century. Uh, so they just called it the destruction of the tea. Um, but however, once the British, in response to the Boston Tea Party, in response to the destruction of the tea, passed, Parliament passed the uh, Boston Port Act, closing the Port of Boston until the tea was paid for. This changed the, um, the political system, the, the political situation, because people who had previously criticized Boston now fell into line behind Boston and recognized that they needed to support Boston because of the heavy-handed British response to um, the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor. Um, the Boston Port Act provided that the Port of Boston would be closed until um, until the first of uh, see, from the first of June on until the tea was paid for, but it didn't provide a very good mechanism for figuring out how to pay for the tea or for knowing when the provisions of the act would be fulfilled. And so that was another, that was a major issue in terms of when the colonists considered what to do about the Boston Port Act. The, um, the um, many, as I said, many people lamented the action. Um, a lot of people favored what happened in Charleston, which as I already said, they uh, the, the customs officers were allowed to confiscate the tea. This was really a collusion with the local people in Charleston. Uh, it was all a put up job that the, that the customs officers confiscated the tea in Charleston. And a lot of people thought it was really a much better way of dealing with it. And a lot, of, a lot of groups, in fact, maintained what I would call a discreet silence. Um, in the summer of 1774, um, 28 Virginia counties held meetings to talk about the Boston Port Act and later coercive acts that were adopted and what should be done to help Boston. And of those 28 counties that adopted regular resolutions, only one strongly supported Boston and the destruction of the tea. Only one condemned Boston's destruction of the tea. Three said, well, we don't know what to think about the destruction of the tea. And the other of the 28, that is the other 23, all said, all said nothing. They said nothing about the destruction of the tea. All they talked about was British policy and their opposition to British policy. So they were taking these, as I say, these discrete positions. Now, what did people say about paying for the tea? Well, there were various positions when people argued that the tea should be paid for. Some people said the perpetrators should be identified and they should be forced to pay for the tea. That was impossible because the perpetrators had disguised themselves as in Indians and, um, and they would not identify themselves. So nobody knew who they were. 
And in fact, the people who perpetrated the Boston Tea Party did not come forward for another 50 years, really. And then, of course, a lot of people who might not have been involved came forward and claimed that they had been involved. And there has been a historian who's investigated the, the truth or, or fiction or the possible truth or possible fiction, probable fiction of these stories by investigating the men who claimed to have participated. Um, should Boston itself be forced to pay for the tea or should Boston as an official town at the town meeting plan to pay for the tea? Some people said yes. Um, how about unofficially in Boston? Um, should wealthy merchants and other wealthy residents of Boston step forward and volunteer to pay for the tea? And some of them did that. Some of them stepped up and said, yes, I will pay my share. You just have to tell me how much it is. And I will be happy or not happy, but I will help to remove the strictures of the Tea Act from of the Port Act from the town if you allow me, uh, if, I, if I pay for some of the tea. Um, some people even said that the East India Company should be confiscated for the should be compensated for the shipping costs they had paid. Um, but some people said, well, all of Massachusetts should pay. All of Massachusetts should pay. Some people said all of the colonies should chip in, either officially or as individuals. That is, there should be a kind of a GoFundMe for paying for the tea and compensating the East India Company. Um, some people, the very prominent um, revolutionary, John Dickinson in Pennsylvania, argued that the payment of the tea could be used as a bargaining chip with the ministry to win repeal of the acts that the Americans didn't want. Now, this whole question was not decided until October of 1774, when the Continental Congress voted no, that the, that the Americans would not pay for the tea. But we don't have a good record of the debate. There's only one delegate's sort of brief notes about what happened in that debate. So it's really very hard to know what the why the Continental Congress decided what it did, except we do know that it decided that the tea should not be paid for. So the third debate I want to talk about is the discussion and the debate over calling a Continental Congress in the first place. Again, this is something that we never read about or hear about. But in fact, Boston did not want a Continental Congress. The Bostonians, immediately after the Boston Port Act was adopted, and when they learned about it, um, which was only two weeks before it was to go into effect, um, they wanted the colonies to join an immediate cessation of all commerce with Great Britain and the British West Indies to use economic pressure to force uh, Parliament to change its position. Now, the assumption that lay behind that is interesting because what lay behind it was the idea that the uh, Boston, that the, um, that parliament could be pressured by merchants. Um, that is that the American market was so important to British merchants that they would um, pressure parliament to change the laws. Because the Americans of course had no direct representation in parliament. And they wanted to use uh, economic pressure on the path of the merchants who were sending them stuff um, to um, convince the parliament to change its policies. This really didn't work, but it was the theory behind um, many of the tactics that the Americans tried over the course of the year 1774, including in the Continental Association that was adopted by the Continental Congress in October of 1774. 
But in any event, as I said, that's what Boston wanted the colonies to do immediately. They didn't want a Congress. They said it would take too long. Um, it would it would was hard to know how to organize it. It was hard to know how to um, where it should meet, when it should meet, and so forth. And so the Boston immediately, upon learning about the Port Act, sent out a call to all the other colonies saying, um, join us in this immediate boycott of all British goods. Um, but a lot of other colonies said, wait a minute, that's a bad idea. We've got to talk about this first. Especially Connecticut, New York, and Pennsylvania said, let's talk about it before we do anything rash. In fact, the only colony that, uh, only other colony that supported the Bostonians' call for an immediate boycott was Maryland, and that was in particular in both Annapolis meetings uh, in both Annapolis and Baltimore that supported an immediate boycott of British goods. So, in fact, they did what happened, and the the Continental Congress was actually the conservative position in 1774. It was advanced by conservatives. It was not advanced by radicals. They didn't want it, um, but it carried the day. And so the Continental Congress, as we all know, met in early September in 1774 in Philadelphia to make up their minds, to make up the, to reach an agreement about what to do about um, the, not just paying for the tea, but about many other um, problems that had come up in the, um, in the relationship between Britain and America. Um, and the pamphlets that were written at the time, that is written just before the convening of the Continental Congress, show that it was seen as a moderate and potentially conciliatory body. Um, they, uh, people who addressed the Continental Congress suggested that it they expected it to be a moderating influence. It turned out not to be the case. That is, the, the Congress went in another way. Um, alas, we don't know that much about the discussions within the Congress because the proceedings were secret. No outside observers were asked, uh, were allowed to attend. Uh, members were asked not to talk about outside of the Congress what was, what was said. Some people wrote letters to, to family members, to friends. Some people wrote um, uh, notes to themselves in diaries, journals, or rough notes of the debates. And a lot of those have now been published, but in fact, we do not, we don't know very much about the details of the debates we, that we have a couple of letters that were clear leaks from the Congress, one that came from a New Yorker uh, late in the day, late in the Congress, one that came from um, a Pennsylvanian early in the Congress, and that's it. And we just, other than those there are three letters actually, two from the Pennsylvanian and one from the New Yorker. Other than those three letters, all we have are sort of rough notes that people kept occasionally. So we don't really know what happened, but what we do know, we don't know how it happened. We only know what happened at the end. So those were very general kinds of arguments that I've talked about, but because we're talking, because I'm talking at least virtually in New York City tonight, I thought I would use my fourth and final example tonight from New York City itself and um, talk about something that I realized when I was working on the book. Now, I said in the beginning that I paid a lot of attention to chronology. And 
that attention to chronology revealed an important link between well-known publications in New York City in the fall of 1774 and local disputes in the city that no one had ever pointed out before and that I certainly didn't realize until I put the, put the whole thing together about the book. Now, the arguments that began in New York City began when General Thomas Gage, who was in charge of the British uh, Army in Boston and also was the military governor of Massachusetts at the time, tried to recruit laborers from New York City to go to Boston and also to buy supplies for the troops from New York City merchants. This is after Bostonians stopped working for and supplying food to the occupying forces in Boston. Bostonians, even though they were being... Um, hit by the Boston Port Act had this occupying force of Brits in there and they were actually making money by working for them and by in fact selling them or supplying them with goods. And um, this raised criticisms of the Bostonians from other people. And so they basically told Boston, if we're helping you with, um, with uh, supplies and you know um, flocks of sheep that we're driving in to feed you in the, while you're being quarantined in effect by the British Army and the Navy, don't work for them. Um, don't uh, be collaborators. So the Bostonians pretty much stopped collaborating. All these carpenters that were building um, um, barracks for the British troops for the forthcoming winter, this is in September, on October of 1774, stopped working for the British. So General Gage needed to find other workers. And so he came to New York City looking for workers or he uh, sent requests to New York City. He didn't physically come, of course. He came to New York City looking for supplies like timber, for like hay, like food, and like laborers. This caused a major fight and division in New York City as a group of New York City radicals began visiting merchants who were rumored to be going to supply goods to Bostonians to pressure them not to supply with the requests from General Gage. This led to many public meetings in New York. New Yorkers were much given to public meetings at that time and also to many broadsides. Um, broadsides were, as you probably know, very cheap um, one page publications that would be handed out on the street or maybe posted on a wall or something like that. Many broadsides were published about this debate about whether Gage, whether merchants in New York should assist Gage in any way. And this dispute split people in New York and they even split the committees that had been managing New York City's response to the crisis. The divisions were extremely complex as even John Holt who was the printer who was most aligned with the Sons of Liberty in New York, published a broadside that argued that not supplying Gage could cause more problems than it was worth. He argued that if New Yorkers didn't supply goods to uh, Gage, then Gage's troops would uh, sally forth out of um, the city of Boston and do raids on local Massachusetts communities, which would be a very bad idea and might lead to um, clashes which ultimately is one of the things that happened because of course, what that's what the troops were doing in April of 75, they were looking for arms and ammunition. So in the middle of these very heated arguments in September and October of 1774, three Anglican clergymen decided to write pamphlets and newspaper essays from what you could now call a loyalist perspective. Um, 
And then supporters of resistance responded to them. So there began to be a huge pamphlet war in New York City, specifically that was instigated by this initial debate in New York over supplying the troops in Boston. And the most famous pamphlet that, uh, that arose out of this was Alexander Hamilton's first pamphlet, um, A Vindication of the Congress. Um, it, he wrote it while he was still a student at King's College, which is of course now Columbia. He thought he was re replying to a publication by the president of the college, Miles Cooper. Um, but he wasn't. The pamphlet that he was replying to was actually written by a New Jersey clergyman named Thomas Bradbury Chandler instead of by Miles Cooper. It was misattributed to Miles Cooper at the time and in fact later, but it was actually written by Chandler. Now this pamphlet war continued well into 1775 and it's really the most active pamphlet war that we have throughout this period. And so um, it shows that this local debate in New York City had a major impact throughout the colonies um, as the pamphlets on both sides were very widely distributed and read and in fact destroyed um, uh, publicly. Some of the pamphlets, uh, the conservative pamphlets were publicly burned in New York City by the Sons of Liberty. But by early 1775, circumstances had really spiraled out of British control. I want to repeat what I said at the outset. By late 74, early 75, the governor's letters to the ministry expect their, express their utter helplessness and their inability to control the residents of their colonies. This was underscored by comments from ordinary Americans writing to their friends in Britain, saying basically, if you guys don't do something different fast, we're going to have a war. And by this is what I mean when I say that Americans, in effect, were voting with their feet by the end of 1774. They were leaving the empire. They were not yet in declaring independence. In fact, they might have um, been reluctant to do that. But looking back, we can see that they had begun to behave in many ways as though they were independent. And I want to close with one of the epigrams that I used in the book which shows exactly that. It's from the Pennsylvania packet from an anonymous essay that was published in November of 1774. I have no idea who wrote it. If anybody on this call has any idea who it is, I'd love to know. I know it wasn't Thomas Paine because he wasn't in Philadelphia yet. And so he wouldn't have been the author of this piece. But I want to quote from it. I, it's interesting to me that this same essay has been quoted by other people, but never the sentence that I'm going to read to you now and that I think is so critical. When I read it, it really blew my mind. Quote, I almost wish to live to hear the triumphs of the Jubilee in the year 1874 to see the medals, pictures, fragments of writings and so forth that shall be displayed to revive the memory of the proceedings of the Congress in the year 1774, end quote. Let me read that, reread that first part of it again. I almost wish to live to hear the triumphs of the Jubilee in the year 1874. Now, to me, that clearly implied independence when I read it. It, and it carried immediate echoes of the centennial celebration in Philadelphia in 1876. It was just two years too early, but it showed where this man's mind was going and where other people's minds were going. That's exactly how people at the time read it. It was controversial. 
Um, the author did not write a promised follow-up. Um, if he did, he never revealed his authorship of this particular essay. But to me, it showed dramatically that there was someone in Philadelphia in November of 1774 who foresaw independence and predicted a celebration of it 100 years later. And I'll just end with that. And I'll be happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, and I love the New York focus at the end there. Uh, Good. So now I will turn it over to Allie, who is going to moderate our Q&A. Remember, if you have a question and you haven't asked it yet, drop it in the chat. Thank you so much, Mary. That was so fascinating. We have a couple of questions here. Um, was there any difference in the taste between the Dutch tea and the East India Company tea? Um, people argued about that. There were some people who said Dutch tea was better and some people said East India Company tea was better and who knows. Um, but there were different types of tea um, and both Dutch tea and English tea had those different types. Um, there was green tea, which was Heisen. There was Lapsang Suchong, which people may drink today. It's very smoky taste. The standard tea that most people drank for most meals was called Bohea, B-O-H-E-A. And uh, that was the standard tea. Um, and who knows how they tasted. Sorry. And we don't even know who was, which was better because they did argue about that. Yep, that, that seems like a pretty fair answer. We just don't know. <laughs> um, Janet was wondering, uh, did all of the colonies participate in the tea boycott? Um, yes, or at least there were people in all the colonies who wanted um, other people to participate in the tea boycotts. Um, uh, and we know that from newspaper essays and from arguments in, uh, in letters and so forth. But as I said, how many people actually stop drinking tea is another matter. Um, there's a very interesting book that will be forthcoming one of these years. I don't know how long it's going to take to see print, um, but it, I've read the manuscript uh, by a man named James Victor, who is writing about the tea trade at this period. And he basically points out that even when the, the newspapers were arguing for a tea boycott, there were merchants who were advertising tea in those very same newspapers. Yeah. So he, he's convinced that many people continue to drink tea regardless of what they said publicly. As, as I'm sure they would today as well. Probably, right. <laughs> um, if the act of destroying the tea in Boston was so unpopular, were there any other suggestions that people had as to how it should have been handled? Well, yes, um, yes. Um, what happened in Philadelphia and New York was that the tea ships were turned away. They weren't even allowed to land in the first place. And so some people said, that's the obvious solution. You just don't let the tea ship come into the harbor. But of course, in, in Philadelphia and New York, people had warning um, because the tea ship in, in Philadelphia didn't turn up until several weeks, uh, until uh, about 10 days after the tea had been destroyed in Boston. So not 10 days, but nine days. Anyway, it didn't turn up. Uh, and so people knew what had happened in Boston. And so they thought, ah, better, then destroying the tea, we should just turn the ship away. And then I didn't mention the fact that the, um, the tea ship that came to New York didn't arrive until April of 1774 because it had been blown off course by the same North Atlantic gale that wrecked the ship on Cape Cod. And uh, it spent the winter in Antigua. 
And so by the time that T ship arrived in New York, that captain knew absolutely what had happened and in the other cities. And he was no way he was going to bring the T, try to land the T, try to sell it, try to do anything to it. And so he rode ahead and he told the people in New York, don't worry, I've got to come. I have to resupply my ship. I have said I'll come to New York, but um, I will not try to enter the harbor. I will not try to do anything with the T. I'll just turn around and head back to England. And so he only got as far as Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and turned around and sailed back to England. So yes, there were people who said, that's the best solution. Don't destroy the T. Just don't let the T land in the first place or do what happened in Charleston, which is let the customs officers confiscate the T for non-payment of duty. Um, Renee wants to know, um, were the motives of the New York Tea Party the same as the Boston Tea Party? Well, there wasn't any New York Tea Party. Ooh, hot yeah, take. We way. talk about that a there lot. Was, well, no, there was a, there was, I'll take that back. There was a, eventually there was a ship that arrived in New York with some tea on board. It was not an East India Company ship. It was a ship just carrying tea for local merchants. And um, there was a big debate about it. I mean, that tea was in fact thrown overboard, um, but there was a big debate in the newspapers about what the motives were of the people and exactly who was involved because some people said, oh, it was only the lowest sort of people who were involved. And other people said, no, no, men of reputation were involved. That's the phrase, men of reputation were involved and they, uh, they were involved uh, and a part of the event as if to give it more credibility. Um, but those kinds of things where, you know, one or two random chests of tea were thrown overboard is nothing like what happened in Boston where well over 300 chests of tea were thrown overboard. Yeah, that it, it was, as, at least from what I know, a much smaller affair. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so let's see, uh, Jeffrey wants to know how, well, so, you just answered my question. How much tea was destroyed in Boston? So about 300? Well, the, the, it, it depends on, I'd have to look up the details, but it's about 600,000 pounds of tea. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Each tea, the tea, shed, the tea chests that held Bohia held about 350 pounds each. And then there were the tea chests that held the green tea and Lapsang Suchong and other fancier varieties of tea. And they had less, lesser amounts of tea, like 60 pounds or 70 pounds. So you can't just say from the number of chests how many pounds of tea there were, but it's about 600,000 pounds of tea. Wow. Yeah, a so lot. That was a big one then. Yes, yeah. it was a big one. <laughs> a big one, right, right. And of course it was three different ships. It wasn't just one ship. Um, how much profit uh, did the East India Company lose because of that? Uh, that's a good question, um, and I really can't answer that. Um, there were people who they the East India Company did try to get compensation from the government in London uh, for their losses. It didn't. They didn't. Um, basically, it's hard to know how much they lost because um, it's hard to know how much the tea was worth. They there are estimates. Um, modern estimates of, you know, over a million dollars um, in today's money. But 
the problem was that we know that they didn't send the absolute best quality tea. We've got the record of the letter that they sent to the warehouse where they told the guy in the warehouse, load tea that didn't sell at the last auction, but not terrible tea, you know, send sort of mediocre quality tea to America. So it's hard to know, it really is. Um, uh, we, can, we can talk only in the most gross terms about this. Just say it's a lot of money. They, they, they lost a lot of tea, but they also had a monopoly, a legal monopoly on trade with China. And so they were making money from other things, even they were losing money on tea. If you wanted to buy silk, for example, you had to buy that through the East India Company if you were going to buy it legally. They were making something. They were making something, not on tea, but on other things. But remember, or maybe not remember, I guess I haven't told about this. They also sold individual chests of tea to individual merchants. And of course, they sold tea in England itself. And um, so individual merchants kept importing tea into America. And sometimes they tried to conceal it. And sometimes it was discovered. And sometimes it wasn't discovered. Sometimes it was smuggled in as though it was Dutch tea and nobody knew the difference. <laughs> So it's really hard to know. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, turning our attentions away from tea here for a minute and towards uh, the Continental Congress, uh, you mentioned that uh, creating the Continental Congress is more of like the conservative approach. Yes. Did some of the more uh, radical people have other ideas of how they wanted to handle kind of the relations and the fizzling that was going on? Um, well, it, the more radical people didn't want the Continental Congress in the first place. They just wanted the colonies to hop into line behind the Bostonians. Um, and so that was mostly it. Um, but they, the radical people had a great impact at the Continental Congress itself. Once the Congress met, um, the radical people had, uh, had, a lot of, had a lot of influence. I might say here that many that People like John Adams had never been to Philadelphia before they went to the Continental Congress. These men who were to become the leaders of the nation ultimately had never met each other. And so before the, the First Continental Congress, the men from different colonies. And so a good part of the First Continental Congress was sort of feeling each other out. And you can see that in John Adams' diary. He's, he's got an excellent diary. He talks about his first impressions of other congressmen. And he, he talks about what he thinks about the Virginians, for example. It's fascinating to read these men who didn't know each other and who, who you know now will be the leaders of the nation going forward for the next couple of decades. Quite interesting. Um, this next question comes from Richard. He says, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the word representation in the phrase, no taxation without representation. Right. And that was meant through the colonial legislatures. Was Wait. there anyone proposing colonial representation in parliament during this time? No, um, originally back in the in seventeen in the seventeen sixties, when the issue of English taxation first came up, there were a couple of people who argued for colonial representation in Parliament, but they very quickly realized that they would be completely outvoted, and so they abandoned that very soon. It it was never seriously argued in seventeen seventy four. Okay, um, and okay. What uh, did you find anything particularly fun or surprising in your research for this? Well, I, one of the fun things I found, and I said, you're supposed to be boycotting tea. Well, there were a lot of people who like today, 
like me, I'm a tea drinker, think that tea is good for you. And especially is good if you're not feeling too well. And so one of the fun sources that I found was what I would call tea permission slips. And they're little pieces of paper. They're out at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, California. There's about 10 of them. And they're all little slips of paper from somebody, different people, to a man who had some control over the local tea that had been confiscated by the local committee asking to give a half a pound of tea to some woman who's ill, to somebody whose grandchild is sick and really would, and the doctor says this person would be a lot better if this person has tea and so forth. That was really fun to find those, find those slips of paper. And it showed how much people really were relying on tea to help them, yeah. Oh, that's really fun. Yeah. Okay, so this is my last question. We're nearing towards the end. Now, this is a big one. <laughs> If you could dine with anyone dead or alive at Francis oh, Tavern, who would you choose to dine with? Oh boy, anyone dead or alive at Francis Tavern. Well, I know who I would want to dine with and I'm sure it's not an answer that any might else, anyone else might give and that's James Rivington, who was the publisher of, the, of Rivington's New York Gazetteer, which was one of the most important ultimately loyalist newspapers, but was not in the beginning a loyalist newspaper. And I would be interested in examining with him and talking to him about why he changed the focus of his newspaper. Was it deliberate? Was he forced? Because he basically started off 1774 publishing pamphlets on both sides. In fact, he published not only Thomas Bradbury Chandler's pamphlet, he published Alexander Hamilton's pamphlet responding to Chandler's. And then he published Seabury's, Samuel Seabury's response to Hamilton. I mean, it's just amazing. He published both sides, but he then as time passed, he moved more and more into publishing loyalist things. And he also, there was also an article some years ago that argued as well that the um, that he became a spy for Washington. So he's an abs during the war because he came he was he was thrown out of Boston. I mean, and in, in, out of New York, and then he came back. So I would have to spend a whole evening with him, more than an evening, to talk to him to find out the truth behind all of these stories. That is one of the best answers I've heard. Frankly, <laughs> I like that one a lot. That's great. That is a really good answer. I was really excited when you said James Rivington. <laughs> Well, are you what you're interested in James Rivington? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I um, part of my job is making resources for the uh, for school programs, and I was right. just writing about him and one of the ones we're making about New York City. So fun timing. He's an absolutely fascinating guy. He also just can I tell? Is there enough time for me to tell a little story about him? About what I discovered crazy. he published a pirated American edition of Captain Cook's journal of his trip to the South Seas. And he, he advertised it by saying, it'd be a lot cheaper if you buy it from me than if you buy it from the British publisher because this is a pirated edition. I'm just, you know, I'm not paying any attention to the copyright. I'm just publishing it. And he got subscribers from all over the colonies, including John Adams and other famous people signed up to buy his pirated edition of, of um of uh, Cook's journal of his first of his first trip to the South Seas. So, and you can read it online in early American imprints um, that that uh, Cook's that that edition, Rivington's edition of Cook's journal is available online. 
well, that's really cool. <laughs> it's a good business strategy if you want to. And he claimed he claimed to have 3,600 subscribers throughout the colonies. Wow. Whether he did or not is not clear, but that's what he claimed. And um, he did have hundreds of people who signed up for this edition of Captain Cook's journal because he listed them in the beginning of the, there's 18 pages at the beginning of this edition of all the people who signed up for it. And I actually investigated who the, who the New England people were and their fascinating cross-section of New England um, society, educated society, ministers and merchants and other random people who seem just really interested in knowing about explorations in the South Seas. That's really cool. Um, James Irvington, definitely a person I would like to uh, hang out with and talk to. Uh, all right, so on that note, we are at the end of our time. Thank you, Mary, for talking with us. It was very, very interesting. Uh, you can check out her book or many of her books. She has several. Uh, thank you, Allie, for facilitating our Q&A. And thank you all for being with us this uh, evening, afternoon, depending on your time zone. Um, if you haven't already, you can follow us on social media. We're all over the place uh, and join our mailing list to keep up to date with all of our lectures. We have another lecture coming up really soon on February 18th uh, with Robert Watson, who you may have seen speak here a few months ago on George Washington. That's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, thank you to those of you who have donated. You are helping us to keep delivering our mission, keep sharing the history of the revolutionary era with you all. Uh, even if we're not able to be together at Francis Tavern, we can be together here in our own homes. If you would like to donate, you could visit our website, francistavernmuseum.org, uh, and you'll be able to do that there. And let me say that my book is available in paperback this month, just being Paper. published in paperback. So buy it. If you don't buy it in hardback, buy it in paperback. There you go. Buy one of each if you really like it. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, right. all, the, all the options now. Don't buy any James Rivington pirated version. Yes, or Audible. Yeah. Oh, or Kindle. It's available in all those editions. Right. All over the place. Check all over the out. place. Right. Right. Um, thank you to all of you for joining us. And I guess we will say good night. So see you all hopefully in just a few weeks at our next lecture. Good night. <laughs>